prophecy of Joel. We'll turn to chapter 2. The thought that we see here beginning in Joel chapter 2 actually starts in chapter 1 verse 14 for the sake of time. We will not take our reading back that far, uh, but we will read uh, the entirety of chapter 2. Hear now the inerrant, infallible, and inspired word of God. Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, and sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand. A day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness. As the morning spread upon the mountains, a great people and a strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall there be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them, and behind them a flame burneth. And the land is as the garden of Eden before them, and behind them a desolate wilderness. Yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, and as horsemen, so shall they run. Like the noise of chariots on the tops of mountains shall they leap. Like the noise of a flame of fire that devoureth the stubble, as a strong people set in battle array. Before their face the people shall be much pained. All faces shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. And they shall march everyone on his ways. And they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run to and fro in the city. They shall run upon the wall. They shall climb up upon the house. They shall enter in in the windows like a thief. The earth shall quake before them. The heavens shall tremble. The sun and the moon shall be dark. And the stars shall withdraw their shining. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army. For his camp is very great. For he is strong that executeth his word For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? Therefore also now, saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. Who knoweth if he will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him, even a meat offering and a drink offering unto the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sanctify a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, sanctify the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children and those that suck the breasts. Let the bridegroom go forth out of his chamber and the bride out of her closet. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? 
Then will the Lord be jealous for his land and pity his people. Yea, the Lord will answer and say unto his people, Behold, I will send you corn and wine and oil, and ye shall be satisfied therewith. And I will no more make you a reproach among the heathen, but I will remove far from you the northern army and will drive him into a land barren and desolate with his face toward the east sea and his hinder part toward the utmost sea. And his stink shall come up, and his ill savor shall come up, because he hath done great things. Fear not, O land. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring. For the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, For he hath given you the former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. And the floors shall be full of wheat, and the the fats shall overflow with wine and oil. And I will restore to you the years that the locust hath eaten, the cankerworm, and the caterpillar, and the palmer worm, my great army, which I sent among you. And ye shall eat in plenty, and be satisfied. And praise the name of the Lord your God that hath dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never be ashamed. And ye shall know that I am the Lord your God and none else. And my people shall never be ashamed. And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit and I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance as the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his most holy word. And we have for ourselves this morning a quotation from the Reverend Samuel Miller. It is important to the proper observance of a religious fast that we retire during its continuance as much as possible from the world shut out its illusions, and endeavor to break its hold of our hearts. One grand object of observing such days at all is that we may occasionally come to a solemn pause, that we may break the spell which is so apt to bind us down to the groveling pursuits of time and sense to take an honest retrospect of our infirmities, failures, and sins. It is of the utmost importance, therefore, that in solemnities which have such an object, we should sacredly withdraw for a time from all worldly cares and allurements that we should put a firm negative upon every appetite and passion which might tend to drag us down to the dust of the earth and try to get away from the snares and entanglements of this passing scene. With the utmost propriety then, when a public fast is proclaimed, it is commonly recommended that all servile labor and recreation be laid aside. 
This is no less important to the spiritual observance of the day than as a testimony of outward respect. And quite as indispensable is it when an individual or family resolve to fast in private, that every occupation be as far as possible suspended, which may even remotely tend to draw off the mind from an entire and unreserved devotion to the appropriate exercises of the day. Thus, Samuel Miller. It is our aim then to take up in two sermons the topic of religious fasting. And I say religious fasting because the descriptive term religious cannot rightly be severed from this topic in our study, although it may be conceived of in popular culture. We have intermittent fasts. We have all sorts of fasts that take place these days. But this is a religious fast. There's a a difference. But preaching on fasting alone can never rightly be the subject of a sermon in the house of God. However, religious fasting as a biblical duty and for the aims of the kingdom of God is an eminent topic of great spiritual benefit. And so we set it out in the Bible as something to which the spiritual and God-fearing man might do well to give great heed. Further, our presbytery is called for all within our bounds to uh, this coming uh, Wednesday on the 28th uh, to dedicate this day as a day of fasting, prayer, and of humiliation of afflicting one's soul on behalf of our nation, our states, our civil and societal connections, our churches, our families, and ourselves. So in keeping with such a lawful request, please allow these two sermons as an encouragement, as instruction, and unto your spiritual profit as you undertake this most solemn duty in this coming week. The occasions of this action by our presbytery are indeed numerous, and one hesitates to mention some for fear of leaving off such as would or should be included in the list of evidences of our ecclesiastical and societal decline toward carnality and worldliness and away from a biblical understanding of what the church and society should be. However, let us bear these things in mind as we undertake to place ourselves on a solid footing before the Lord when we are, as a presbytery, called to fly to him with our grief and sorrow for our churches and our nation. Another point of introduction is also necessary, and it cannot be overstated in my opinion. We do not fast this day because of national and ecclesiastical judgments that the Lord has already sent. And I hope you caught that in the reading of Joel chapter 2, that this fast was not in response to judgments experienced, but for judgment anticipated. Those judgments experienced, we might even learn, shall we not, to give thanks for those that they have called us to this day of fasting. As we've had lesser judgments take place in our nation, in our churches, even in our families, ourselves. We, with the psalmist in Psalm 119.71, say, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. So fasting is not necessarily for judgments already, uh, already experienced that the Lord would somehow give us respite. We thank the Lord for the judgments that he has brought. We don't call upon his name to 
abort affliction, as Edith Schaefer once said. Rather, we call upon the Lord to turn back from judgments anticipated, which will no doubt grow in intensity. A further notice is necessary also taking clues from godly and biblical examples. Let us not separate ourselves wholly from the society around us when it comes to confession of sin in our fast. We cannot simply say it was them. We are a part of this visible church. And we are a part of this nation. And we are a part of this society. Let us not think that when the Lord increases and intensifies judgments if he does, that his people, as a part of this nation, will be wholly spared. The beauty of the Lord our God, isn't it? Isn't it the beauty of the Lord our God that he is able, with one stroke, be it a hurricane, an earthquake, a famine, a disease, whatever it is, that he is able to do with that one stroke exactly what is needful upon his own people and upon his enemies. At the same time, by the same stroke. And that with his spirit he will preserve, uphold and make use of that judgment as it falls upon his people. And by the judge of all the earth will rain down judgment when that time is right upon his enemies as well. The truth of the matter is I believe that with regard to the church and I'm pained to say this It does not yet hurt enough. We, ourselves, our fellow Christians in this land, have cursed the darkness and with disdain have cast the finger of accusation in the direction of our society's wickedness. But because largely we have been spared those judgments, as we just read in Joel 2.9, because it has not yet come to our windows, we think it never will. We have become complicit in our retreat into our own enclaves rather than letting our light shine before men speaking in the gates so as to bring glory to God and not being content that our personal ease and prosperity continues. But beloved, I do not believe that we can or ought to remain complicit in the privatization of religion, keeping our head down, adopting the chivalrous of our age, so as to look to the evil principalities of our day and hope from them for safe passage, as if it was theirs to give. Remember Judges 12.6? Remember when the Ephraimites and the Gileadites were at odds with one another? And the Ephraimites, the the Ephraimites were trying to get home and the Gileadites were, de- were, were delaying them and they said, okay, um, they were pretending they were Gileadites to, so they would have safe passage. And the Gileadites said to them, say, Shibboleth. And they said, Sibboleth, because they couldn't frame to pronounce it right. And they said, although it's not recorded in the text, aha, thy speech betrayeth thee. And they knew they were dealing with Ephraimites. Beloved, This is a system, a concept that goes on all the time. The shibboleths of our age have been adopted by many, even in the church, so that we can get safe passage from one who has no right to give it. 
safety is of the Lord. And if we think <coughs> that they will give us safe passage, remember that they will up the ante. They will require not only shibboleth, they will require participation. Not toleration, but approval. Safety is of the Lord. We must turn from the idol of security and take refuge under the wings of the Lord. As we have been saying for some time and so we continue today, judgment begins at the house of God and we cannot expect real reformation in our vicinities and districts until we see reformation and revival in our churches, beginning with us and extending to others of like faith. And from there then into our society more generally. God is concerned not necessarily about the USA, but his church in it. Remember for the Lord, it is always about the church. It is always about his sheep. And the church in this nation, we say with grief and not with accusation, because we are a part of this visible church, that it is in sinful and horrible, doctrinal, ecclesiastical, and liturgical disarray and freefall. It can't be said any other way, beloved. And until she repents, we cannot expect any real improvement, but an increase of judgment. And believe it, brothers and sisters, it will come to our windows. Not judgments that have already come, but judgment that is coming. Remember that the perversions of Romans chapter 1 are the ends of the Lord's judgment and not the beginning of it. The prophet Ezekiel refers to the leaders of his days in 817 that they had filled the land with violence by their idolatry. Note that the Lord visited their ecclesiastical sins with temporal judgments. Why would we expect anything different in our age? It is certainly obvious to the most casual observer that our land is filled with violence. And in meeting on this 25th of December, we are the more aware of human encroachments upon our service to the Lord. The church's syncretism in this age concerning doctrine, philosophy, practice, and worship has filled our land with violence. And beloved, it is time to fast and pray. We may even be late to the party. We meet this day to prepare ourselves then to call upon the Lord in a special time of fasting and mourning this coming week. The world in flames today meets to make merry. Turn with me in your Bibles, please, to Ezekiel chapter 21. Verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, set thy face toward Jerusalem, and drop thy word toward the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. And say to the land of Israel, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I am against thee, and I will draw forth my sword out of his sheath, 
and I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked. Seeing then that I will cut off from thee the righteous and the wicked, therefore shall my sword go forth out of his sheath against all flesh from the north, from the south to the north, that all flesh may know that I, the Lord, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. It shall not return any more. Sigh, therefore, thou son of man, with the breaking of thy loins, and with bitterness sigh before their eyes. And it shall be when they say unto thee, Wherefore sighest thou, that thou shalt answer, For the tidings, because it cometh, and every heart shall melt, and all hands shall be feeble, and every spirit shall faint, and all knees shall be weak as water. Behold, it cometh, and shall be brought to pass, saith the Lord God. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus saith the Lord, say, A sword, a sword, it is sharpened and also furbished. It is sharpened to make a sore slaughter. It is furbished that it may glitter. Should we then make mirth? It contemneth the rod of my son as every tree. And he hath given it to be furbished that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and it is furbished to give it into the hand of the slayer. Cry and howl, son of man, for it shall be upon my people. It shall be upon the princes of Israel. Terrors by reason of the sword shall be upon my people. Smite, therefore, upon thy thigh, because it is a trial. And what if the sword contemn even the rod? It shall be no more, saith the Lord God. Thou, therefore, son of man, prophesy and smite thine hands together, and let the sword be doubled the third time, the sword of the slain. It is the sword of the great men that are slain, which entereth into their privy chambers. They will not find safety there, will they? So, beloved, not your most encouraging of openings to a sermon. I understand. But these are necessary thoughts as we prepare ourselves to fast. Let me give you a word of encouragement before we go on. Fasting is an ordinance of the Lord by means of which the people call upon the name of the Lord. And the Lord hears them. He hears. He knows our fasts. He will hear us. Please understand our temporal situation may not improve. The Lord may continue his judgments. Large portions of the visible church may continue in idolatry and worldliness. But also note that the Lord does give promise to hear from heaven. And to give repentance and mercy. And beloved, this is the main thing we look for in a fast. It is not deliverance from judgments. Deliverance from judgments only presumes upon the mercy of God. Fasting does not. Fasting in deprivation we say of ourselves, O Lord, I am not worthy even of my daily food we abstain and refrain this day lord in testimony that we deserve to be starved out 
sent out in every way. And it is to a people thus affected with their sin that the Lord inclines his ear. To the fat, the happy, the secure, the ones who are in the face of that furbished sword are making mirth. Well, the Lord often shows that the heavens to them are brass. May it not be so among us, beloved. Come Wednesday, may there be no dry eyes among us as we come to fast and weep and mourn before the Lord as we've been encouraged to do by Joel here. As we bring our petition before him, not for deliverance, but for mercy in the midst of judgments, And for repentance from sin in ourselves and in every connection that we have in our churches, in our nation, in our families, and so on. That like we read last week from the prophet Zechariah, that when we mourn, we will mourn together and we will mourn apart. So, beloved, these are Important things, we must come roaring in to a sermon like this because our society is, as one popular philosopher said, entertaining itself and laughing itself to death. We must be cured of that attachment that we have to fun, jollity, and recreation. We gather then for this fast as a nation already under God's judgment and that for our sins. But we do not gather with a carnal pessimism. That's the worldly way. Ask the person on the street about what he expects from Washington. Especially here in North Texas. You will hear sneering. You'll hear disdain and dissatisfaction. Rather, this is not that kind of pessimism that we desire. We are not surprised at the judgment of God. And rather, we are seeking mercy in the midst of wrath. But what if God were to send repentance? Would that not glorify Him? We are not surprised when God sends judgments for sin. He glorifies His justice, doesn't He? As we say in the larger catechism, these movements of God are to the praise of his glorious justice. No one could fault God for sending down fire from heaven. But is there not a greater glory that comes to God when he shows mercy? Does he not show himself to be merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundance in chesed the emet? Loving kindness, covenant fidelity, and truth. And while he will by no means clear the guilty upon some of those guilty, he will indeed shed abroad his grace and mercy. This afternoon as we look at Isaiah 58, Isaiah 58 will put it in the negative. Let us at the end of our introduction here put it in the positive. Isaiah says to the people of Israel, Ye do not fast this day so as to make your voice to be heard on high. Well, let's turn that around. 
Let us fast so as to be made, so as to make our voice to be heard on high. Let us fast in such a way that the Lord would incline his ear. Not that we will ever fast worthy of his inclination, but certainly we cannot expect him to incline if we continue in mirth when there ought to be mourning. When the Lord calls for fasting and weeping and instead partying, killing and slaying and eating and drinking as the prophet Jeremiah says. Certainly we cannot expect that the Lord would hear in such a time as that. So I want to encourage you at the end of this introduction. Encourage you that as dire as it is, the Lord is on the throne. As wicked as the visible church appears, the Lord is on the throne. As wicked as the government appears, the Lord is on the throne. And beloved, I'm convinced we don't know half of it. Yet, the Lord is on the throne. And we call upon the name of one who is able to turn the heart of the king as the rivers of water, whithersoever he will, and everyone lesser in authority than the king as well. We come to a God who can do and will do according to his mercy in Christ. So I have a few examples for us to look at here before we close this morning, but I want also to turn back to Joel chapter 2 and pick out a few things there for our notice. There are some things that are said here that we must learn ourselves. In verse uh, 12, notice, Therefore also now saith the Lord, Turn ye even to me with all your heart, and with fasting, and with weeping, and with mourning. The first thing that we recognize a fast is designed to do is to call upon us to turn to the Lord. To turn to Him, not only from our sins, but to turn to Him for mercy and for forgiveness and for repentance. Not only to call upon His name, rather than calling upon anything else. Like we said a few moments ago, to turn away from the idol of carnal security and what might, what might be able to be bought from our from our civil estate through the shibboleths of this age. But we turn to the Lord instead, and we turn to Him with an acknowledgement of our sins, so we seek repentance. That's what we mean by turning here. The second thing, we must repent of setting up idols in our hearts. We must, as Paul said to the Thessalonians, turn to God from idols to serve the living God. And this means that each of us apart must search our hearts for these idols and we must cast them into the brook Kidron. We must search with the candle of the Lord. We must shine the light of God's word into every dark corner of our hearts and sweep them out with the besom of destruction and ensure that the Lord reigns there instead. So we must ask ourselves some difficult questions in our turning to the Lord Number one, what do I love over much? What outsized love have I shed upon something that I owe to the Lord alone? What paradigm of thought 
other than his word has taken hold of my heart in my thoughts such that God and his word have taken a lower priority. Third, what person, what activity, what state of being holds more sway than the Lord speaking in his word does? Fourth, what do I need to turn from if I turn to the Lord? Is it my own comfort? Is it pleasure or ease? Is it an unholy focus upon finance, getting, saving, acquiring, coveting? Remember, the Apostle Paul tells us that covetousness is idolatry. Is it treasuring some sin as churches? Is it a refusal to reform? Is it a fault in our worship, our service, our testimony, our witness? What is the idol we must root out in order to turn unto the Lord? Is it living the good life? Is it our civil liberties? Is it recreation and leisure? Is it haughtiness of being reformed Presbyterians and worshiping God according to his commands and having it knocked? In Ezekiel chapter 14, 1 through 11, I, we don't have time to turn there, but this is that passage where the Lord tells his prophet Ezekiel, you know, these elders of Israel, they've set up idols in their hearts. And while they've set up those idols in their hearts, when they call upon my name, I won't hear them. I'll send them to the idols that they've set up in their hearts in their prayers and see how that fares for them. Beloved, in our fast then, let us search out those idols of our own hearts that we fast so as to make our voices to be heard on high. We note the intensity of this depth and turning Notice what it says. It is with the whole heart. This is as a people and as individuals. Beloved, let us meditate on these few points as we consider this. The natural man's heart is not divided as ours is. He's all in, isn't he? For wickedness. We sometimes find our own hearts divided The natural man is consistent in his hatred of the Lord and his ways and his word and his commands. But it is not so for us. We are endued with redeemed and sprinkled hearts. Then shall we take those hearts which the Lord has redeemed and tolerate profane division in them. Such that our hearts should be divided and not whole and complete and perfect. Shall we confess with the psalmist, unite my heart that I might fear thy name. This wholeheartedness is a common confession among the writers of Scripture. Just a brief run through the Psalters in Psalm 9 1, 111 1, 119 2, 10, 34, 58, 69, 145, and 138 1. In all of these places, the psalmist will say, With my whole heart have I sought thee. See also the testimony of Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 3.10 and 24.7. You can take those down and look them up later as a part of your preparation. Jeremiah 3.10 and Jeremiah 24.7. That one's easy to remember. 24.7. We want our hearts to be gathered holy to God. This fast then should be undertaken in sincerity with all the marks of sincerity. And should we find division in our hearts, 
should we find that gazing back over our shoulder toward the idols we have thrown out, this will be an even greater cause for our fast and our mourning, will it not? Understand, though, that we fast in that way so as to be heard and not to be sent away. And we see that threefold mark of this sincerity and wholehearted turning to the Lord. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. That's what verse 12 teaches us. Fasting, weeping, and mourning. But we must be clear here, this fasting, mourning, and weeping must not be for judgments received, but for the sins which brought those judgments and the sins which will bring further judgment should we not repent. We said this before, back in 2020, we say it again. Now, the last thing we want in this fast, beloved, is a return to the status quo. The status quo got us where we are. We must move beyond that. We must ask the Lord, not for the status quo, not that our supply chain is is somehow not interrupted anymore, that gas prices come down, that no more are we going to be slammed by, by cold or freeze or snow or ice or hurricane or earthquake. That's not what we want. We want repentance and reformation. We want the things that brought about those judgments To be taken away. We don't want the judgments necessarily taken away. As we said before. We desire the judgments. Because they bring us to repentance. And we wouldn't come without it. We don't want the judgments taken. We want the sins. That brought them taken. Now look to the next particular command. In verse 13. And rend your heart and not your garments, and turn unto the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and repenteth him of the evil. How does God repent of the evil? Let's double down on the point. He repents of the evils advertised. Again, we are not asking with regard to judgments past, but judgments coming. Unless we repent, beloved, we can expect things to intensify and get worse. It's judgment's coming. So notice he says, turn again to the Lord. And there is the promise of God's mercy to those who turn. And beloved, let us say it this way. With the same stroke, the Lord may bring repentance to his people. It may be a mercy to the people of God to receive that same stroke that is that final stroke of judgment. In our morning study uh, on faith, we've been talking about uh, the advantages of faith and so on and the, and the components of faith. One of those things that we talk about is, you know, what happens when someone of great faith dies? And that in a maybe, maybe even in an untimely way. What does the Bible teach us about that? The Bible is not silent on things like that. Sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll be talking to an unbeliever and they'll say something to us that they think is an unassailable argument. They will say something like this. Oh, but devout Christian grandladies, they go, they die untimely. Don't they? Where was God's kindness then? What does the Bible say about that? The Bible says... 
that the Lord takes away such people in his love from judgments to come, that they will not suffer with the wicked. What are we taking away to, beloved, when we're taken away? We're taken away to Christ. We're taken away to him. And so, we don't know what God is going to do when we call upon him in fasting. His design may be to intensify the judgments upon this nation and the visible church in this nation until great destruction comes. We don't say that we failed, though, or God somehow failed to bring his people into that place of repentance. We say that God took away his saints from greater judgments that were yet to come. We don't know what God will do. We pray not with regard to the alleviation of particular outcomes. We ask the Lord for repentance that he would bring us to that place where we are finally rending our hearts and not our garments. What does it mean to rend children? It means to tear or to break or to rip. I won't do this, but if I took my robe because I became so affected during a sermon and just went like that and just tore it open, that would be to rend it. The Lord calls upon us to do that to our hearts. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Now, the Lord is not saying here that it's unlawful to rend your garment, but he's saying the rending of the garment without rending of the heart is useless. It is just a vain show. Or some sort of carnal affectation. Oh, there were times where the Pharisees rent their garments. The Sanhedrin rent their garments in the presence of Stephen when they heard his testimony of Christ. And they rent their garments in that vain and carnal way to no avail. Because what they ought to have done was to rend their hearts. This is what Joel calls us to do here in 13. And rend your heart and not your garments. And it is, isn't it, he will talk later about the, about the judgments that they've already incurred. Right? What judgments? The palmer worm, the canker worm, um, rain uh, that, that has not fallen, and so on. All of those kinds of things. Certainly they had been rending their garments. It is as if, Joel will say, stop the rending of your garments only. And begin rending your hearts. So rend your hearts and not your garments. That's the next word. Again we hear turn unto the Lord. And now we have several things. Several things called for in verses 15 through 17. Number one, it is a formal call. You hear that? Your session, your presbytery has the authority from God to call a fast. And your elders in your presbytery have come together and said, yes, it is time to do so. Certain things have taken place over the last couple of years. Certain things have taken place in the last couple of months. And certain things have taken place in the last couple of weeks and are taking place even today. All of our elders are agreed. It's time to call this fast. Look at what it says. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sanctify a fast. Call a solemn assembly. A holy convocation. 
מקרא קדוש. It is required, it must be answered by all. It is authoritative, it is for all people. It is for from the elders to the infants. This is why, children, we want to meet together today in our story time and talk about any questions you might have so we can get some instruction. Because it is for you as well as it is for your parents. It is for the elders and it is for the members. It is for all within our bounds. Remember the king of Assyria in the town of Nineveh What he did that day when he heard the preaching of Jonah in what had to be the shortest and most effective sermon of all time. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown, period. Next location, up on the box. In 40 days, Nineveh shall be overthrown. Next location, up on the box. And what did they do? They repented. They put on sackcloth even on their animals. That even in the lowing of their cattle, they might be reminded of their sins and need to repent. So it is a formal call. It is required. It is for all people. The most urgent of earthly duties are to be suspended if possible. And, and that's typified here by marriage, right? Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber. Remember that there was a time when Moses commanded the people of God in Deuteronomy chapter 24. He said, when you get married, you don't have to go to war. You can stay home and cheer your wife for a year. Not now. Not here. Not in Joel 2. Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber. And the bride, let her go out as well. Let them also participate in this fasting, in this weeping, in this mourning, and this rending of the heart and not the garments. Repentance is needed nationwide. Repentance is needed churchwide. Repentance is needed on every soul. In verse 17, the leaders of the church are to take that leadership up. Look at this in verse 17. Let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep between the porch and the altar and let them say, Spare thy people, O Lord, and give not thine heritage to reproach, that the heathen should rule over them. Wherefore should they say among the people, Where is their God? They are to intercede for the people. They are to ask mercy and grace from the Lord rather than judgment. And they are to do so for the glory of the Lord and for the honor of his name. Because that is covenantally tied to his people. They are to bring honor to the Lord in calling for repentance. They are to formulate then the call to fasting and to mourning and to weeping. And to bring this call before the people. And then to lead them to the throne of grace. Let me give you three brief examples for uses and then we will close. All of these examples are for your encouragement. I know it's not much of an upper sort of sermon, but a downer kind of a sermon. That's okay. It's supposed to be that way. That's by design. But there's also some encouragement here. Our first example is King Ahab. We think of the name Ahab. And have you ever noticed no one names their child Ahab? Why is that? When Herman Melville would write something that was sort of an in-your-face uh, to, you know, it was a fatalistic sort of in-your-face, well, then he named the bringer of the demise Ahab. Right? Moby Dick. He named him Ahab. Not many children are named Ahab. Why is that? Well, because Ahab was wicked. 
We know something about Ahab, don't we? That he married Jezebel, and Jezebel's father's name was Et Baal, and he was a priest of Baal. Et Baal simply means the master. The word Baal means master, and it's a name that they would call their false god, Baal. Sometimes it's a catch-all name. It can stand for many different idols across the ancient Near East. But the name of Jezebel's father was Et Baal. He was a priest of Baal. And Jezebel brought Baal worship into the court of Ahab. Ahab for himself became a Baal worshiper. And that was the first time in Israel that they turned away from the false worship of Jeroboam, which was uh, purported to be of the true God. And in Ahab it was turned to a God of another name. They were no longer worshiping Jehovah through the calves. They were worshiping Baal instead. Well, that's a bad guy. As king, he had the responsibility to preserve the true religion in Israel. Those kings were covenanted with God, or they should have been. And so, not being so, he turned away from all of that. And so in 1 Kings chapter 21, verses 17 Through 29, the prophet Elijah comes to Ahab and tells him that the Lord is going to destroy him and his house and take the kingdom away and his dynasty will not survive. The dynasty of Omri will not survive. In fact, we get the impression from Elijah's prophecy that it is about to happen. And what does Ahab do? He goes softly and he weeps and he mourns before the Lord. And what does the Lord say to the prophet Elijah? You see how Ahab goes softly and mourneth before me? Therefore, this judgment will not happen in his lifetime. It will happen in his son's lifetime instead. What an amazing testimony to the fact that God hears importunate weeping prayer. God takes note even of wicked Ahab and his mourning for judgment's coming. That we who are believers not in Baal but in the true God Jehovah and his son Jesus Christ might take encouragement when we come before the Lord with weeping and with mourning and with fasting that he will hear. And that he will grant repentance. So the first is Ahab. The second is Nehemiah. In Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah the son of Hakaliah, and it came to pass in the month Kislev, in the the 20th year, as I was in Shushan the palace, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came he and certain men of Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews that had escaped, which were left of the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The the wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. We remember the prayer of Nehemiah. 
right, as the king's cupbearer, that he would indeed uh, give Nehemiah an opportunity for favor. Nehemiah, in his prayer, reminds the Lord of his promises. If my people call upon my name and turn from their idols, that I will hear them from heaven. And so, what happens? The next time he's in the king's presence, the king starts the conversation. And Nehemiah begins the genesis of the restoration and the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Beloved, can we with Nehemiah confess that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down? As the prophet of old said, that thou hast taken down the hedge of the vineyard of the Lord and the boar of the woods doth lay it waste? Yes. Yes, beloved. We drove by several churches on the way to church today. Empty parking lots. Empty parking lots. Why? We know why. And then thirdly, one more example of encouragement. Jonah. We've already mentioned Jonah. Jonah chapter 3. Verse 5. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. For word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and covered him with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed nor drink water. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hand. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from his fierce anger that we perish not? And God saw their works that they turned from their evil way and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them. And he did it not. Can I close this overly long harangue with Jeremiah chapter 18? Turn with me there and receive these encouragements from the Lord. Verse 6, Jeremiah 18, 6. O house of Israel, cannot I do with you as this potter, saith the Lord. Behold, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are ye in mine hand, O house of Israel. At what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to pluck up and to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have pronounced Turn from their evil. I will repent of the evil that I thought to do unto them. 
and at what instant I shall speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it do evil in my sight, that it obey not my voice, then I will repent of the good wherewith I said I would benefit them. Now therefore go, speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I frame evil against you and devise a device against you. Return ye now, everyone, from his evil way and make your ways and doings Let's stand and call upon the Lord in prayer. Our dear Heavenly Father, we come unto thee and ask that thou wouldst grant to us that freeness of heart. To look upon not just the sins of our society, churches, families, family members, but our own sins as well. Oh Lord, we pray that we would begin with ourselves. Lord, we thank thee that thou dost begin at thy house. And so we pray, grant that repentance here among thy people as we sanctify a fast and call a solemn assembly. Oh Lord, we pray, let the ministers weep before the altar and the porch that thy people may be induced themselves to follow their example and hear thou from heaven when we call upon thy name we thank thee for the judgments that have drawn us to this day for the encouragements we have of being heard and we thank thee that we can anticipate repentance calling upon thee as we do O Lord, we ask that thou wouldst be with us in this coming week, that we might be a people ready to call upon thy name. Help us to prepare. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated.